Good morning and welcome to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. I'm Nathan and joining me today is Craig. Hello. And Susie. Hello. And Steve Hen. How are you, Steve Hen? Hello. Oh, Stephen. He's written your name wrong here, you see. Really? Yes, he's Steve Hen. Stephen, who is joining us as a guest host for the day, and we're going to interview him later in the episode about Bitcoin and topic in which he is an expert. We'll see. Or, we'll see. First thing we need to do is we got quite a bit of feedback from last episode. Um, first uh, is from Mark. Um, re-governments using dowsers. He says, in my past life as an ACT government employee, I came across an old file that mentioned the Australian government employing a dowser in Canberra back in 1931. I gather from the file that the ACT lands office uh, lands officer, James Brackenridge, was less than impressed. And this is a quote of that chap in question. The result of my visit to the farm on Tuesday with the engineer and certain persons who are supposed to have some knowledge of finding water as a result of the divining rod was certain positions were located and I arranged, subject to your approval, for certain boring operations to take place in order to test whether or not there is any water at the spots indicated. And they apparently sunk a few test bores and they found water near the existing well. Apparently the measurements of the flow of water uh, did not prove very satisfactory. Um, he's given us a couple of links to the ACT government archives where you can read all about it. Uh, it looks like it's a pig farm of some sort wanting to get permission for something to get more pigs or to be a pig farm. And um, they had to have a certain amount of water flow. And uh, in the process of that, dowsers were hired. We'll put those links in the show notes if anybody wants to read more about it. We have another message here from little Stevie Galbraith in Auckland who says, episode 59, had an especially good interview. Anthony Magna Bosco was a really... Why am I reading this? I I could read my own feedback, couldn't I? Stephen, would you like to read, read us your feedback, please? Episode 59, had an especially good interview. Anthony Magna Bosco was a really interesting and thoughtful interviewee. I also want to stress that I think Nathan did a really great job as an interviewer. You asked penetrating questions, and Anthony clearly appreciated it. I would say he didn't fully address the issue of the ethical basis of challenging people's beliefs. He said that his main aim is to promote street epistemology and that the purpose of street epistemology is to make people consider the foundations of their beliefs. It follows that he is working to make people challenge their beliefs. He didn't address whether or not people have the right to be sure that their beliefs are unchallenged. It seems to me that street epistemology is from a kind of ethical, intentional point of view, not very different from an evangelist on the street trying to convert people to their faith. Uh, and then, P.S., on the subject of Lawrence Krauss, I would have expected you to mention that he was a former guest on your podcast. Yes, and you are quite right. He was. I, I know I intended to mention it, but obviously we didn't. So, yes, he was. He is actually, I believe, the first guest that we had twice really? on our podcast. From memory. So going back to uh, street epistemology and Anthony Magnabosco, I messaged Anthony Magnabosco to ask him your question about um, the ethics of challenging people's beliefs. And he directed me to the Critique Street Epistemology 
Facebook group, which is an entire group just dedicated to people wanting to critique street epistemology, uh, as the name suggests. And I found a thread, interestingly, on the 24th of March, um, by a chap na- or a person named Derek. I imagine this has come up before, but is it really ethical to walk up to strangers at random and shake the foundations of their knowledge? This could definitely cause more harm than good, I think. Uh, he's not trying to make a utilitarian argument, just an appeal to intuition, to be careful who you demand justifications from. Um, unfortunately, in that discussion, I don't know that anyone has given what you would consider a uh, a solid response to your question. Um, I'd have to give that to you and let you have a look at it. Um, so from what I've seen, because uh, I listened to the interview and I thought it was good, and so I followed up and I watched some of the YouTube videos, and he does have a process where he does essentially get informed yes. consent from the person. Um, he says that he's, he wants to talk to them about a belief that they hold, and he discusses what sort of how, how the process works, and, and he's going to give them, and he says, well, limit it to five minutes. And So I, I don't think he's necessarily doing anything unethical by sure. talking to people about um, it. There's also in that thread in the Facebook group, a link to Anthony Magnabosco's blog uh, on streetepistemology.com, when to abstain from street epistemology. Um, is the question, is there ever a time when you should avoid having a conversation with someone that could cause them to doubt a belief? Um, so I'm not going to summarize that. If anybody wants to, you can click on the link in the show notes and go and have a read of that, as well as the Critique SE Facebook page, which uh, I encourage you to go and join and challenge their deeply held beliefs. I'm sure they would appreciate that. Anything else you want to talk about that, anybody? No? Is that all right for you, Stephen? Does that answer your question? So the next bit of feedback is from a friend of mine on Facebook um, who I'm pretty sure this was Matty, and I should probably double-check that because apparently I haven't pasted it in here. So if it's not you, Matty, then sorry. If it's somebody else, I'm also sorry. And if I figure it out, I'll change it later. Uh, Listening to episode 59, I am a Lawrence Krauss fan, and the level of evidence that I would need is an adverse result of the ASU inquiry. I think on what I've read so far, he is a little bit socially awkward and a little bit of a lech, but not that much really and certainly not anywhere near what approaches criminality. If anything, a slap on the wrist from an HR manager kind of level. Although it is interesting that there hadn't been any formal complaints about him at the ASU and the BuzzFeed article I think was politically motivated and devised to do a hatchet job on his reputation because of his outspoken nature. Um, I think that's more or less what we were saying, really, is he's a bit creepy and a bit lechy and not really, well, except for maybe one example or two, not really uh, breaking the law, just being a little bit, yeah, creepy. Well, there's the one incident with Melody where he was actually holding her down and attempting to have sex with her. She got away, but I think that's probably attempted rape, if nothing else. Uh, although of course it's claimed that 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 would come under the right. level of criminality. Yeah. Uh, Susie, 
You had something to say? Uh, just fine. You're a Lawrence Krauss fanboy. Can we just move on? Border this. Okay. Fair enough. It's amazing the level of evidence that men require for women being assaulted and various other things. Uh, sure. What I would add is there's a huge difference between whether someone's doing something criminal and whether someone's just the kind of person you want to be inviting to events as a role model. So if someone does something criminal, you mm -hmm. take them to court, you lock them up or punish them in some way. But when you're running an event, you may decide that some, some person doesn't represent the values you're, you're doing and then you might disinvite them or not invite them in the first place. And that's all we're talking about here is whether or not someone should be coming and giving talks, not doesn't matter whether they're a criminal. Well, um, it would matter if they were a criminal. Separate, but a separate, separate issue. issue. Quite right. Yes, absolutely. A separate issue. I'm also not 100% mm -hmm. sure that a hatchet job, um, because of his outspoken nature, is necessarily accurate either. Um, whether it was politically motivated mm -hmm. or not, I don't know how you'd go about establishing that. But anyway, let's move on to the rest of the show. Okay, first news item. Citizen Science in New Zealand reveals potential EV battery flaws. Craig, tell us about the battery flaws. Right, so um, I don't know whether I've revealed previously on the podcast, but I am an electric vehicle owner uh, for about four months now. I have had a Nissan Leaf um, and am enjoying it very much, very pleased with it. Um, but recently it has been revealed that um, there is a potential problem with a particular model of the Nissan LEAF, um, and this is done through a citizen science project being run um, out of Dunedin by some people at the University of Otago. Um, so uh, the, the people that, that uh, own electric vehicles are, at the moment are certainly enthusiasts and would like to uh, get other people to get other people on board. And so what um, they're doing is every month they've got this project called Flip the Fleet where you are required to enter um, data about uh, how you've used your electric vehicle, such as sort of the number of miles or kilometres travelled, uh, how many charges you've done, how many fast charges you've done, and critically what the state of health of the battery is. And the state of health of the battery is basically a measure of the, uh, the capacity of the battery and how much charge it can store. Um, and so what, what's happening is that the, um, this project has revealed that owners of the 30-kilowatt uh, battery version of the Nissan LEAF are experiencing uh, faster-than-predicted decline of the battery capacity. Um, so... Uh, the manufacturers have, who are Nissan, who ha have a, a certain expectation that um, the batteries are likely to decline in capacity of around about 3% per year. Um, on the 30 kilowatt hour leaf, as measured by this project, what seems to be happening is that it's declining about 10% per year, which is rather alarming. Um, so what they're seeing is that uh, after say, two years um, use of, of the vehicle that is to climb to what the manufacturers predicted would have declined after five years of use. Um, so this is kind of alarming for people who uh, own that particular model. Uh, my model is a 24 kilowatt hour um, version of the LEAF, which seems to be uh, fine. It seems to be performing as predicted by the manufacturer. 
Um, so the, yeah, this is this is kind of concerning, um, but it's nice to see uh, a citizen science project um, producing some results. Um, so what they've done is they produced a, a scientific paper, which is in the process of being peer reviewed. Um, they've submitted this to uh, Nissen for comment. Um, and is there any comment? Uh, so so it seems yet that the well, I'm what I understand is that Nissan are uh, analyzing it. Um, there's an interesting historical um, point on this in that uh, virtually all the uh, Nissan Leafs in New Zealand are actually imported from either Japan, the UK or the US. Nissan have only ever sold a 24 kilowatt leaf in New Zealand, and they only did that for a brief, very brief time. Um, and they stopped doing that in, in 2015. So uh, there's actually no real local support for um, for the Nissan Leaf. So it, it's it'll be interesting to see what what actually happens and whether there's um, whether the the manufacturer here is able to support people and actually give them right because they've um, been imported rather than redress I suppose from the local Nissan yeah indeed. Um, yeah, so, so it's yes. interesting, worrying for people who own that particular model, so, I would think. How, how much are they? Um, uh, from what I understand, the 30 kilowatt leaf is probably sells for somewhere around about the $27,000, um, So it commands a bit of a premium over um, the 24 kilowatt hour leaf. And the 24 kilowatt hour leaf, the price you pay really depends upon um, – the age of the car, uh, the the state of health of the battery, um, how many kilometers it's done, and so on. So obviously, you can buy a pretty old car. They started manufacturing them in 2011. Um, you can get an old car that doesn't have particularly great battery health, but as long as you can get the range out of it that you need for whatever you're doing with it, then then you're fine. And those sorts of though I've seen those for somewhere around about the eleven or twelve thousand dollar mark. Um, and up to the the more recent ones are sort of up around the about the twenty five. So roughly twenty five thousand dollar mark somewhere around there. What what is the range brand new versus that three percent depreciation after say five or ten years? Um, in the ideal situation. So according to the manufacturer, um, the thirty kilowatt hour leaf would be rated for one hundred and seventy two kilometers range. Um, which is interesting to me because I reckon that my 24 kilowatt hour leaf, I can probably at least get 170 k's out of it um, when from fully charged. So I'm not sure exactly how how that that works out. Um, right, but I, I definitely only have a 24 kilowatt hour leaf. So yes, over time your ra- your available range would decline. Um, so you may find that after five years of driving, then you might only get 110 kilometers out of it, or, or maybe after seven or eight years, you might have a range of only 70 or 80 kilometers before it needs to be recharged. Um, and I guess it depends on what you're doing with it. I mean, most, most people's uh, commute every day is less than 100 kilometers. Um, and so you can bring it home, plug it in at night to charge and um, you're fully recharged the next day and away you go again for your next commute. Yeah, I suspect it would do quite nicely for me down here. 
I mean, the furthest yeah. I would go would be, I don't even know, I'm not good at estimating distance, but, you know, one end of New Plymouth to the other. It's not that much. Yeah, well, it's a fairly short distance. I, I did a... Um... I did a trip a couple of weekends ago uh, where I had to drive all the way from home down to Drury and back, oh, yeah. uh, which was about 110 kilometers. Um, and by the time I got back, I still had around about 35% battery charge left. Okay. And so I probably could have probably got another 50 or 60 kilometers perhaps out of it before it was absolutely um, exhausted. Uh, but of course, you never drive it to, to it's absolutely exhausted anyway. Um, so, so there is that. So, Susie, woman dies. This is not an onion article, is it? No. Woman dies after having bee sting therapy. Indeed. Um, so this. Let me get Gwyneth Paltrow involved. <laughs> yeah, oh yes. <laughs> You had to ask. Um, so this is a, a crazy form of acupuncture where instead of using acupuncture needles, people get stung with live bees. Live bees. Yeah. And <laughs> it's just, yes. Uh, anyway, um, a lady who has been having it for the past two years um, has died suddenly of uh, of, uh, of basically a, a massive allergic reaction um and the her doctors have because so she basically had a reaction that they called an ambulance took about half an hour to get there and then she ended up in a hospital and she then died she went into a coma and died a few weeks later and so her doctors have written up her case in an in a journal basically to kind of say what the hell? Um, but calling for you know, like people not to do it, but if they are going to do it, to make sure that the place where they have it done, you know, know how to respond when someone has a you know what could be a fatal allergic reaction. Uh, have things like EpiPen on uh, on hand because they basically didn't do anything. She just collapsed and sort of I think possibly even stopped breathing, and they didn't know what to do other than call an ambulance. <sighs> how would you not? It's it's pretty pretty yeah. shocking that they didn't yeah. have adrenaline available. Well, it seems yeah. obvious to me, doesn't it? Well, if you're going to sting people with bees, have a fucking epipen. Yeah, well, there you in a go. Draw somewhere. There you go. Um, oh god. Yeah, so they're saying perhaps people should be better trained, but better better would be for people not to to do it at all, really. Well, because that, it's yes, I actually did some reading about this, and um, I did a, a search and found a meta-analysis that had been done of a whole bunch of uh, trials. Because um, also people, there are other reasons why people give uh, kind of bee venom to people, um, sometimes to try and, you know, so get someone so that they won't have a, a massive allergic reaction. But anyway, it was the meta-analysis basically showed that if pretty much every trial that there was a huge uh, number of people who had an adverse reaction to having either either this form of acupuncture or to being uh, exposed to bee venom, you know, from kind of rashes to, uh, yeah, to this kind of thing. So it really is dangerous. People shouldn't do it. I, I like, I like the, the way the paper's written because it, it's very formal and scientific. And then the final paragraph, as well as making these recommendations that the techniques should be formed, performed in a safe environment with adequate facilities, it, it then concludes, these measures may not be possible. Therefore, the risks of undergoing epitherapy <laughs> may exceed the presumed benefits. 
which <laughs> it's pretty clear that authors don't think there are any, leading us to conclude that this practice is both unsafe un and unadvisable. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Mm. Wow. It's bonkers, isn't it? Okay. But yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow is a fan. And, and so, right. therefore... So, was she personally She has done it? in the past in interviews, yeah. Right. For, and, and the things the things they claim it's useful for as well, you know, the kind of classic, uh, pretty much everything in the kitchen sink. But it was, I think this lady was having it possibly for, um, oh, what did they say that she was taking it for? I can't remember. Maybe just sort of a general feeling of just, you know, wanted to feel better sort of thing. It's like for nothing in Mus particular. Muscular condition, it says. So I don't know if we talked about him in a previous episode, but he's certainly been around on the old Facebooks and whatnot. Um, is the guy finally managed to launch his rocket, the Flat Earth Denier? He's not flat a, earth he's a flat earther. Flat, flat, <laughs> no, flat earther. Flat earth promoter. <laughs> I'm a flat earth denier. Flat spheroid earth denier. Um, he built a rocket and failed to launch it. But just recently, he has actually succeeded. Interestingly, from the photos on this article, it looks like a different rocket from the, the green one he's standing next to okay. versus the red one in all the other pictures. Um, flat Earth theorist and self-taught rocket scientist Mad Mike Hughes has catapulted himself half a mile into the air aboard a homemade rocket in a Californian desert town. Um, he launched his steam-powered rocket. What? Um, okay. Apparently it's a steam-powered <laughs> rocket. Launched his steam-powered rocket and re reached an altitude of 1,875 of its feet, 572 metres uh, in California. So he tried to do it before and had technical problems and uh, he was unable to get permission, permits and whatnot, I guess from the yeah, the airspace authorities. Not the first time he's launched a rocket. Uh, it is the Flat Earth Theorist's second attempt to launch a rocket. In 2014, he travelled 1,000 feet again. So he's in the rocket. Is that? Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, how, yeah. So how it's far would you, when he came How far does he, would he have to go to, to um, basically prove to himself that the Earth isn't flat? Has he, as he said? Right, so... A lot further than 500 metres. <laughs> yeah, probably. I was going to look that up, actually, but uh, I didn't, so... So he apparently is about 10 kilometres up, which is basically yeah. where you would be right. on an so, international yeah. flight. Okay. On an airplane, you can see the curvature of the Earth, or a normal person can. I don't know whether a flat Earther would be able to recognise it. Yeah, so he's, he's he's done it before in 2014. Well, well, yes, but don't they put special... Um, oh, right. Yeah, of course they do. Right. It looks like okay. the... Uh, yeah, fish eye glass. Right. That's a thing. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, it is unclear if the second attempt was considered enough to debunk all modern science and prove the flat earth conspiracy. Uh, he has been meaning to go further and build a bigger raccoon rocket that uses a gas-filled balloon to get to the upper atmosphere. The vehicle is to take him some 68 miles up. <laughs> this may not happen for some time yet, as Hughes is going to be busy with another project. He plans to run for governor of California. 
<laughs> Apparently, um, he actually landed badly and um, was carried he off. He did injure himself. It says he injured so, himself on his last I, flight too. Yeah, I think he's probably lucky to be alive. I mean, if you if you go up that high and you well, come down with a crash, well, I mean, he, he needs. Um, I should be had some sort of a parachute or something. Yeah. Well, it doesn't. Not yeah, the video it. doesn't show. I, I was assuming he has a parachute. I, I think it's it's incredible that he can build a rocket. It's really hard. Yeah. To build a rocket because the, because it's driven it's this whole idea of pushing a pencil it's driven from the bottom and so keeping stopping it from just spinning around in circles. Yeah. If you go on YouTube and look at all these early rocket experiments, they all yeah, just explode. So to actually build your own rocket is, is pretty impressive. Yeah, it's got impressive. The information's out there. We no, it's more than fins. It's all gyros and getting the engine yeah. right and everything. No, yeah, it's, it's it's very yeah. impressive. I'm amazed that someone that practical <laughs> and sensible and can actually build something so complicated cannot just realize by pure thought that the earth is not flat. Hmm. Susie was about to say something and I interrupted her. Oh, I, th- I said he should um, get in touch with Elon Musk because he wants, you know, in order to come down safely, he wants the um, that beautiful, you know, how they brought their beautiful oh, Falcon yeah, Heavies yeah, yeah. down or whatever it yeah. was. That's what he wants. Yeah, so good on him, I guess, for doing that. Um, not quite sure what the proof right. would be, but either way, good job, that guy. Well, I, th- I think he's doing it m- much more for the publicity than... Um, then he necessarily believes the earth is that flat. view right. of yours, Craig, That's is saying. both you can never extremely tell cynical and probably a hundred percent correct. <laughs> cool. Okay. So the next thing is new word in the dictionary. Embiggen has been added to the dictionary. So for those of you who don't know, a perfectly cromulent word it is, isn't it? Uh, I don't know why we've never heard it before. So embiggen was first uh, introduced to the world, I suppose, on. The Simpsons in 1996. It is the motto of Springfield. A noble spirit embiggens the smallest man. Uh, Merriam-Webster says it means to make bigger or more expensive. Expansive, not expensive. I said expansive. Expansive. Sounds like... Yes. So very exciting. Uh, I guess if you're into that sort of thing. If you like words. (laughs) What's the um, relevance of this? (laughs) It's cool. Oh, sorry. Okay. Right. Okay. It it does have echoes of um, the Black Adder and um, Doctor Johnson's dictionary. Ah. Uh, right. Yes, yes. I guess. I don't know. Maybe you're not old enough. Black Adder. Black Adder. I was trying to figure out what the references. There's a dictionary in that episode. Somebody just with a word. Right. So Doctor Johnson is make is making the world's first dictionary, and he's listing all the English words. And Blackadder tries to piss him off by using oh, words that right. aren't yes, really yes. words, and which forces Doctor Johnson to write them down. And and um, Blackadder said, "Bye. Well, it's a common word in these parts, and so on." Yes. Yes. Well done. <laughs> okay. That was all I wanted to say about that. I always thought that was exciting. So, hopefully Susie's had enough time to read about this one. She's going to tell us about why scientists have established a link between brain damage and religious fundamentalism. Well, whether there's a link or not is another matter. A study has just been published that looked at uh, religious fundamentalism. They basically had this apparently a score and a questionnaire that you can use that rates people on religious fundamentalism. Um, And they had a theory that, that people perhaps with some... Um, damage to certain parts of their brain might be more likely to um, have fundamental religious beliefs. Um, and so they tested this by essentially getting a sample of patients. I think they might have been um, 
soldiers or things uh, with uh, 119 patients that had had penetrating traumatic brain injuries, gave them scans compared to people who didn't have those brain injuries, and then also did this um, did the questionnaires to see whether they were were uh, had where they were on the religious fundamentalism scale. And they have indeed found that people with certain types of uh, damage to their brain were more likely to be um, to hold fundamental religious beliefs. There you go. Yep. So, so it has to do with cognitive flexibility and openness, which are both psychological official type psychological terms. Yes. The the oh, thing that's they they compared these hundred and nineteen people with only thirty normal and inverted commas people. So I don't know. I think you'd want larger sample sizes than this. And it would seem like you could get those larger sample sizes. So hmm. I think this is interesting, but um, yeah, I, early days, I would say. Fair enough. I hear it. found that cognitive flexibility refers to the brain's ability to easily switch from thinking about one concept to another and think about multiple things simultaneously. I'd also be interested to see it done in different populations. Hmm. So, um, because there will be, there's, they have a particular definition of um, fundament, fundamentalism, and so it will exist in other, you know, types of context, I guess, in other cultures. So it would be interesting to so see non, non-religious same. fundamentalism. You mean? Yeah, or at least non-Christian fundamentalism. That makes sense. Non-American Christian fundamentalism, I guess. Yeah. Yes, that's right. There were male combat veterans recruited um, from a head injury study uh, things. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. interesting. So interesting, but not definitive. We'll see what happens. Indeed. Cool. Uh, okay. So moving on now to our interview. Stephen, you're still awake? Yes. Okay. Stephen, have we had you on the show before? I think I, I think I did something. Maybe you, you've, I mean, you've popped in from time to time with hmm. odd comments and whatnot. But have we actually interviewed you about something? I maybe? think there might have been one after my talk at the conference on the mathematical cranks. That sounds familiar, actually. Quite right. Hmm. So everyone knows who you are. So you don't need to introduce yourself. I'm joking. Well, you need I, to I will yourself. anyway. <laughs> well, he's the man. Yes. He's the man behind. <laughs> <laughs> that just sounds disturbing. <laughs> That's fine, and what you choose to I do think in it's your important own time. To point out, it's important to point out that for acoustic reasons, we are all in different rooms. <laughs> the, the listener will be able to judge whether this has had any noticeable effect on the sound quality. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll be doing plenty of judging tomorrow. So, Stephen, who the hell are you? So, I am a professor of mathematics at the University of Auckland, and I research cryptography, um, and so therefore I've learned a little bit about Bitcoin and other cyber currencies and blockchain systems over the last few years. Cool, which is convenient because that's what we were going to ask you about. <laughs> and, and, you're, and you're a Bitcoin millionaire, no. aren't you? Do you have any Bitcoins? <laughs> he does because I bought him a part of a Bitcoin because I thought it was funny years nice. ago. And I'd love to know how, well, I'd love to know that, but I, he doesn't know where it is. I think oh. like the, we have a little passport thing and I don't, yeah. I'm, I think he's lost it. <laughs> oh. I'm sure it's somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> this is always hopeless. 
clearly doesn't care. So obviously Bitcoin's not that yeah. important to you as a concept or as a as a potential currency. No. So what is Bitcoin? <laughs> Start with a with a layperson's explanation of what Bitcoin is for us. So I, I guess the main feature is that it's decentralized. So there's no there's no central bank. There's no authority that that manages it. Um, it's uh, so it's distributed from the computing point of view. It's distributed. It's based on a distributed um, data structure which has many copies all over the place, um, and it's a currency. So it can be traded. You can you can pay for something in Bitcoin, and, or someone can pay you in Bitcoin. So it has a way of changing hands. Uh, is that the official definition? That's, of that's currency? basically what it is. Yeah. That is basically what it is. It's a it's a it's a it's a decentralized currency. So it does count as currency. Well, if people think it has value, yeah. apparently people think it has value, and therefore it can be used as a as a way of trading. I mean, basically, there's 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 sort of two ways of thinking about an item of value. I guess you can think of it as a as a thing you trade which is what we usually think of with money. You know, you, you, you want a coffee, you pay for a coffee. Or you can think of something as actually an, an investment, right? So you buy a painting or a um, stock or, or something, you know, whatever, or a stock. And, and you don't, it's, you know, it's just hoping that this will become worth more and then it will, um, you'll eventually have a cash in. So Bitcoin was originally set up as a currency and it was originally used as a currency, you know, for, for um, international purchasing over the internet, for um, sort of dodgy, you know, Iron semi-legal or not at all legal things. So certainly in the beginning, but that was what wind. it was supposed to be. It was kind of a it was kind of a libertarian currency. And what's happened in the last few years is it's basically become a an, an investment. I mean, the reason why it's got these crazy values and these highs and lows is because people are just speculating on it. So, I mean, you can still use it as a, as a form of currency, but it's, it's it's not actually very effective as a form of currency because it can't process a high volume of transactions. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there was the, I'm sure you've all seen the John Oliver thing. I mean, his, his, he put the example of a conference about Bitcoin where you could pay for the registrations in Bitcoin, but at, actual, at some point they couldn't process the transactions fast enough. So they went back to credit card. <laughs> transactions to register for the conference on Bitcoin. So, you know, credit, you know, Visa and MasterCard are, are processing um, billions, probably 100,000 yeah. times um, transactions at a faster rate than, than Bitcoin. So it's pretty useless as a currency. It's a little bit like, there, there are lots of other ones. There are lots yeah. of other things following a similar model and some of them are more efficient than others. It's a little bit like the uh, NRA not allowing guns at the conferences. The conference, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in, in terms of transferring ownership, so is it simply possession that means? Well, it's possession of a private Bitcoin. key. So the, the whole thing's the reason why they're called cryptocurrencies yeah. is because there's this, there's a, a couple of the key features that are enabled by cryptography. So that's just information security tools. So one of the main building blocks is what's called a digital signature, and a digital signature is kind mm -hmm. of what you think it is. It's something that that you should be able to generate to, that somehow authenticates yourself in some way. And so to, to spend a Bitcoin, you, you issue a digital signature, which is based on some secret that you have, and that signature transfers ownership to, to somebody else. So, so I've got a public key. Craig's got a public key. If I want to move my Bitcoin from, from Stephen to Craig, I sign it with Stephen's key, um, and um, the, the, the thing I'm signing is, if you like, a letter saying, 
I now transfer this money to Craig. And now that, and, and that, that transaction goes onto this public database, which is called the blockchain, but it's just a pub, public list of transactions. And then everyone knows now, because this blockchain is decentralized and is stored all over the web, everyone now knows who looks at the blockchain knows, ah, Stephen sent money to Craig. Uh, it's now Craig's Bitcoin to spend, um, and he can issue digital signatures that will allow him to pass it on to somebody else. Right. So, so where are Alice and Bob in all of this? <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget Eve. Uh, <laughs> they're all they're all millionaires. Millionaires, sorry, no millionaires again. Yeah. Maybe you better explain the reference. Well, as cryptography is yes, usually as Alice and Bob, and the adversary is called Eve. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so the the so there are a lot of these different systems. There's a huge number of different systems. They've proliferated like crazy, and the the key feature, the real key feature, is this blockchain idea. So it's really this idea of having a, a public decentralized transaction list or register of things. And there's ways of making this um, semi-private. So so with Bitcoin, you can't. People talk about Bitcoin as an anonymous. Um, currency and it's 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 much less anonymous than normal caches, um, but mm. but so there's a public list of transactions, but the transactions don't actually have people's names on them. They have some sort of identifier that's, that 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 is um, that's in the, that's linked to your public key. And but but you can't you, if you look at the blockchain, you're just going to see some random hexadecimal code gave bitcoins to some other random hexadecimal code. You're not going to know who those people are, but you'll know that that you can follow the money if you like. So you can find out who, which identities are wealthy and you can find out which identities have only got one or two Bitcoin. Um, yes. and, and so, you could probably so do some could, kind of network analysis and deduce who these people might be. Um, yes, you could analyze patterns in the data yeah. to figure out actually who, who it is and wh- where they're spending it and all that sort of stuff. But, but, this, but this blockchain idea is a perfectly useful idea and there's a lot of people very excited about other applications to do with contracts and transparency and all sorts of things. So, so blockchain as an idea is a, is a perfectly sensible idea and it's just, it's just a bulletin board, you know, it's not even a new idea. Um, so, uh, and then there's things like Ethereum that are based on um, smart contracts and, and these, this is very popular now. It's less of a currency and more of a kind of a, 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 a way for people to come to agreements and negotiate and whatever. Mm. I'm seeing a lot less of um, Bitcoin advertising on social media. Is there a reason for that? Well, you know, this idea of advertising is interesting because, again, there's no central, you know, who's who's advertising? There's, there's no bank well, of Bitcoin that's paying for the advertising, right? So, so if, if someone's no, advertising, sure, it's, it, a, it's a third party. It's someone offering a wallet service or or yes, trying to get you in their consortium, right. or whatever. So there's all these there's all these organisations that have sprung up that are in the Bitcoin space, but there's no one who's managing it. And um, there's there's certainly, I mean, the things that are interesting about Bitcoin is that it's kind of self-modifying. So it's, it's very important that it regulates the supply. So the supply of Bitcoins is, um, um, I can't remember off the top of my head what it is, but there's there's more or less a certain number a day that should be, that should be produced. And it consumes a lot of computing power yeah. making these things. There's this proof of work, which is the, sort of the most dangerous idea ever invented. So it's based on this proof of work, but as computers get more powerful, as people throw money at it, they can do more work. So the Bitcoin protocol has to modify itself to 
increase the work required to produce bitcoins so that the rate, so that even though computing power is increasing, the rate of actual bitcoins generated in calendar time stays more or less constant. So there's some kind of consortium that at least has the power to agree on how the parameters are, are growing. But, but that's about so it. That, that's something that is that's something that's being modified over time. Well, it's in the it's in the, no, it was the in the design. The original design observed that due to right. Moore's law, it would be necessary yeah. to scale the work. The, pr- the the proof of work is this core yeah. ingredient. That's what's called. That's this mining. You talk about Bitcoin mining. You're doing a proof of work, and and it was understood right in the original paper by the enigmatic Satoshi Nakamoto. Uh, it was said in the original paper that this is going to have to um, scale up over time. Um, mm. It's interesting that uh, that they didn't have the the foresight to realise the energy. Well, this is the abhorrent thing. So, so Bitcoin, this idea of proof of work. So, so the the, the question is, if it's decentralised. I mean, there's still got to be, there's still got to be, uh, it can't be the complete wild west. So if you decentralize something, there's still got to be a, no, a sort of a, a mutual notion of truth. So the, the challenge with Bitcoin is how do you have something decentralized? There's no one in charge, but it can't just go off in all directions. You can't just say everybody, oh, I'm making money and everyone's doing transactions and um, people could be double spending. I could, I could, I could mine a Bitcoin and then, and then, um, give it to Craig and give it to Nathan and give it to Susie and give it to 20 other people. Um, you know, what, what's stopping me from double spending or multiple spending? So there has to be some kind of consensus. A distributed consensus has to form about what are the valid transactions. And this is where the proof of work comes in. It takes some, there's some workload in managing a system. So with, with ordinary currencies that's managed by the central bank or the reserve bank or whoever's in charge of the currency does this management process. In Bitcoin, this is this is decentralized and it's it's um, outsourced. But the, to, to for various technical reasons, this has got to be this uh, this has got there's a there's a good reason why you have to have some kind of time lag into this. So this is where this proof of work emerges. You don't you don't want to have everything managed instantaneously because again, it could sort of splinter off into pieces. You've got to make it significant time. It's going to take five minutes to process this and five minutes to process this. And so you don't know tra- transactions aren't actually instantaneous. If I if I send uh, a Bitcoin to Craig, he should really wait for 20, 30 minutes until he's sure that it's somehow settled in and it's, 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 it's the, 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 the distributed notion of truth is universally acknowledging that my transaction to, to, to Craig has, has, um, has happened. So, so this is where this, this workload idea comes in, this proof of work. And since the original design of Bitcoin, there have been other ways of coming to a distributed consensus. So there's proof of stake, which basically says the people who've got the most skin in the game, it's, it's, it's their word decides what the, what the um, judgment is. Uh, and that is also a reasonable way to come to a consensus because the people who've got the most to lose are going to be most incentivized to keep the thing running honestly. Uh, and that's how some of these ones are set up now. But Bitcoin is based on proof of work. Proof of work requires an increase of workload over time and work in this case means electricity. So, so Bitcoin is deliberately designed to exponentially increase its energy requirements over time. I mean, you could not imagine anything worse. I'm pretty sure I can imagine something <laughs> worse. And it's completely wasted. It's completely it's, wasted. It's wasted electricity. Well, they, yeah, the apologists will say, oh, it's not wasted, it's creating value, they say. <laughs> Which, I mean, you'll find this on the web. Oh, no, it's not wasted electricity, it's creating value. 
but it, but it's really destructive because you've got something whose whose energy requirements must increase, but it's designed so that the energy requirements will will, will increase, and there's no one in charge. So even if ninety five percent of the people in the world came to the feeling that actually this is kind of stupid and it needs to be turned off, there's no one who can turn it off. Huh. There's no I one in charge. That point of view. Right. It's 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 the genie is out of the bottle. So we've created this thing that has value that can't be turned off that requires exponential growth in energy use. Mm. Good one. Right. And so the the only the, the only way that it would be able to be turned off would be if it no longer had the perceived if everyone value. Yeah, it could crash. Those. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, it's not even using it, but investing in but it. But that's hard to arrange. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, the, the, obviously the speculation was working on the, the idea of the bigger fool, that you, you buy something in the hopes that somebody else is stupider than you are and mm. pay more for it. That's a little bit... Yeah, but there's no reason why it couldn't, there's there's no reason why it couldn't <laughs> maintain its value. I mean, I, who knows, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things that, have, that people will spend a lot of money on um, just because they're scarce, so... That have no yeah, intrinsic no, value. So, no I mean, there's no, there's no law of nature yeah. that has to die. A diamond. Hmm. Well, roll on fusion then. <laughs> to save Bitcoin. That's the best argument I've yeah. heard yet yes. for fusion. So, <laughs> as an investment, your thoughts? Not that you're an investment. No, no you wouldn't. Well, I mean, you do whatever you like if it's yeah. your money. Um, yeah. Certainly not a particularly stable investment. No. That's so a what good is the, what is the current price? Don't know. I mean, it got up to nearly twenty thousand, and then it was down to US dollars, and then then it went below ten. But it's probably still high. It's probably eight or nine thousand or something. Um, nine thousand four hundred ninety-eight dollars yeah. twenty-four cents on Bitcoin. So if uh, all those stupid people who bought it when it was up around fifteen thousand dollars have lost. Yeah, money if they didn't sell it before. Yep. <laughs> Basically. So who has Bitcoin other than Steve? I remember when it first came out, I looked into doing some mining and um, and I couldn't get it to work. So, oh, really? It was, a bit, um, it was a bit fiddly early on. It was I was oh, doing it. I think tried it. Yeah. But, yeah. but I figure, but I have no regrets because I figure that probably if I had done mining back then, I probably would have um, put them somewhere that they'd all get stolen and um, would be no Well, it's hard anyway. to steal them. I mean, yeah. people when people talk about Bitcoin theft, uh, it's because they've used some third-party wallet service to store their to store their secret keys, and then that site's been hacked. And then there was, there was a very famous one. There was a Mt. Gox that was the biggest one that claimed to have been hacked. But then in the end, it turned out to be a bit more dodgy than that. It wasn't clear that it had been hacked at all. It was actually they were doing something dodgy and um, what I heard was that they pretended they'd been hacked as a way of covering up the fact that they're just basically being scam artists and ripping people off. Um, so it's the whole thing's the Wild West. Like, yeah, the whole thing's the Wild West. They're running a pyramid scheme, basically, and clearly claimed they got hacked. I have a percentage of a Bitcoin lying around somewhere from early mining efforts. And last I checked, it was worth about $1,000. Cool. So I guess I have oh. about a ninth of a Bitcoin. Cool. Yeah, I should have, I should have cashed it in probably when it was really. Aren't you high. the rich one, Nathan? Well, yeah, ostensibly, I'd cash it and invest it in something sensible like <laughs> index funds. 
it is interesting when you when you Google the price of it and there's a little graph that actually yeah. shows the yeah. um huge peak at the beginning <laughs> of 2018. Yep. And now it's got very, up to close very, to thirty thousand New Zealand dollars and uh now it's very, very uh, close back to where it was. Below ten. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. It was such a huge amount of hype late last year. Early this year even would have been a rocket yeah, time it's still to sell. Way higher yeah, than I, was, I think right? I guess from a Yes, but you don't know that until Oh, for sure. It's if you had got it back at the beginning, you've made money on it. I mean I've I've probably spent maybe a couple hundred bucks worth of power just by leaving my computer on all day when I was mining originally. I say originally, this was two thousand twelve ish probably. Um mm. and yeah, for getting a thousand bucks back out of that, it's not too bad. Mm. Yeah, I think you know, from the I think of the damage <laughs> you've done to the environment, Nathan. You what? The damage you've done to the environment. Oh, I feel really guilty about it. So, from a from a skeptical point of view, I, I, most of this stuff is now here to stay. I, I expect the the early Bitcoin will go down in history as one of these crazy bubbles, like you know some of the other famous ones, South Sea bubble and Tulip bubble and things. It's certainly of that of that kind. But I mean, unfortunately, there's 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 nothing that's going to stop bubbles coming up from time to time. And uh, I think blockchain technologies are just going to become fairly routine, ordinary, normal things. You won't even know that they're there. Probably they'll just be bundled into some application or some service. It'll be running. You know, for for the first few years, everyone goes on about you know we've got blockchain, and then at some point it just becomes you know it's like saying oh we've got Everyone's a web page. You don't even say it anymore. It just becomes normal. Yeah. And I suspect where it'll go. Yeah. Um, no. Sure. So so there was. Um, there was the case of Eric Watson cynically adding uh, blockchain to the name of his company, which then drove up the share price. <laughs> People were all hyped about blockchain. Really? Yeah, it's nuts. There was, uh, yeah. I think it was, long, it was a Long Island iced tea. No, some some drinks manufacturer did this as well. Yeah. 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 That's a funny one. Yeah. So in the future, crazy people. In the future, could we be using some sort of cryptocurrency? Well, the thing is, we're already using electronic. We're already using, I mean, you know, credit cards. You can use your credit card everywhere now. I mean, that, we've more or less got this point where we have a universal yeah. electronic. Not a currency, but, but I mean, ways you, of paying. It's kind of, it's just kind of done though, right? I mean, I'm about to go to the US. I'll just take my credit card. I'll pay everything on my credit card. You know, you, you, you don't. It's not clear that, that you're going to add much to just. I mean, obviously, the, the the credit card companies are doing very well out of this with their transaction fees and unfavorable exchange rates and all these things. But um, it, I mean, in some sense, if you're looking probably. for a problem, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a solved problem now. Spending money, isn't it? I mean, it's easy. Yeah, fickle. Even online, yes. it's easy. It happens online. Um, There's quite a lot of credit card fraud, but you know, it all gets it all gets some. Um, um, and, and that's why we pay fees for credit card. Everyone's, they, they have everyone's to, happy. So. Yeah. It's, not, it's not clear that that's it's the greatest problem facing humanity is how to, how to buy things on the internet. I think we've solved that. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Anybody else got any other questions about that? Nope. Nothing else you want to add, Stephen? No, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to um, speak. I've enjoyed it very much. Cool. So, New Zealand. <laughs> I'm not going to read this headline because I refuse to participate in any way in the concept or the promotion thereof. Who's in charge of that, Susie? Not me. Craig, tell no, us about it's this. it's me. It's me. 
Yeah, so the- now, just before we start, though, I'm going to point out that there is a there is a law on the internet when a headline ends with a question mark, the answer is probably no. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, the the the, qu- the headline is: Is reusable, shareable family cloth a good alternative to toilet paper? So, there's an article about the concept of reusable <laughs> reusable toilet paper. Um, so, it's not actually toilet paper; it is a cloth. Um, and there's a photograph in the article of it, um, sort of wound onto a toilet roll kind of device. Um, and so they're, they're claiming that there is this this product being sold on a site called Etsy, um, where you can use this to clean yourself up, and then rather than um, flushing it down the toilet, you put it into some um, basket where you go and wash it at the end of the week, and, and it gets reused. And so supposedly this is. Um, environmentally friendly and that you're not getting rid of all of this toilet paper. I am not in any way convinced that anybody is actually doing this. I'm sure no, this is either, still a because, troll. Because, well, and I, I don't necessarily think it's a troll, but when you go and visit the site where they're selling it, this is a handmade product. And so it's not, it's not being manufactured in any vast quantities. And this is kind of like a little niche um, boutique kind of product that Perhaps as a joke, I don't know, mm. but um, okay. yeah. So I am very skeptical that this is actually a thing, and it seems rather disgusting. And I can't imagine that anybody would really want to do this. Someone's um, yes, okay. So I guess it's basically like a nappy, right? That uh, if people are going to use this, you would sort of want them to have um, put it into bleach or disinfectant before then putting it through or, the washing machine, which is kind of what you do. Or plutonium, as someone well, suggested in one of the comment yeah, threads. You know, there are there are lots of families who use um, who, who use material cloth nappies, so it's kind of the same thing. So using that as a you know you uh, for for grown ups, you would hope that they were cleaning them in the same way, I guess. Um, whether people might use it just for wheeze, that would be less gross, I guess, and easier to clean. Um, but I guess it's the same with cloth nappies, right? It, once you've done all the washing and all that kind of stuff, is it that much more environmentally friendly? That would be the question that I would ask. Yeah. It's still pretty, uh, yeah, well, I just hope people yeah, wash exactly. their hands properly. <laughs> I, I, I think um, the... People should use bidets, right? I mean, yeah. what you should do is you just go to the toilet, you should use a bidet and wash yourself properly with water, and then you dry in a towel. People have a shower or a bath, and they dry themselves with a towel. So people are wiping their bottoms on towels all the time. It's just that they've soaped, hopefully, first. So I don't think there's anything intrinsically squeamish about the fact that a towel has touched. No, it's, I don't think that's that's it's, it's, it's a question of how dirty it was first. And uh, if you really want to be use an alternative to toilet paper, you should use soap and water, or, or like they do in half the world. Half the world doesn't use toilet paper, right? They, you go to the toilets in the Arab country, and there's a bucket of water and a. And that's how you. That's what you do. So anyway, we'll, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes as to where you can buy these if you want to try them out. Apparently, there's a bit of a lead time and delivery because they're handmade, so um, it can take a couple of weeks to uh, get made. Yeah, well, they've had plenty of publicity, so. They should be doing yes. quite well for themselves. Yes. So, Albie, Whale, and Zach, 
story about AI. Oh my God, this is just the most amazing story. <laughs> it's just got red flags and scam all over it. It's amazing. Uh, amazing that way. Um, Carry on. Yeah, so this is a something that sort of popped to light through um, David Farrier, who's a fantastic journalist who um, uncovered the competitive tickling scam that I led to the film that. Tickle. Yes. Right. So he has basically looked into um, this supposed AI, Zach, that is um, working on um, – there's, a, there's a, a, apparently a bunch of doctors in Christchurch who are sending patient – so I think this might be recordings maybe of, uh, of, of um, uh, consultations with patients, and the idea is that this AI will turn those into consultation notes for them. Um, and so this is supposed to free up time for the doctors to then, you know, see more patients. It's more or less just transcribing what they're saying then. Well, it's supposed to be an AI doing it. Um, and, okay. And it, so it's just the, the I guess the person involved is somebody called Albie Whale, who's a, who's a young man who just, seems to have an interesting uh, kind of background in 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 starting companies that then either go bust or or, or stop um, his uh, they're all called terrible something so I think he had a what, what were the, what were they there was um, which is some <laughs> there's, there's a lot of this where you go there's like lots of clues in the name um, terrible print yeah. terrible energy <laughs> terrible Indeed. ideas and terrible as a service. Yeah. Anyway, he's now running a charity <laughs> called the Terrible Foundation that basically has yeah. this, this AI Zach. And what the um, so the the people who've been testing it say that they essentially email these things to Zach, and then Zach can take twenty minutes or so to get back to them with the with the notes, which seem to have some quite odd spelling mistakes in them. Uh, sometimes Zach can't do too many things at once, but nobody seemed concerned that Zach wasn't really an AI system that they were interacting with. Nobody seems to have even considered that perhaps Zach was a person. Um, and it's Is there just- some sort of ethical issues around this and uh, sending this information oh to God, somebody? Isn't there? Yes. So apparently all the patients have given their consent, but uh. I, I don't think that they that, – yeah, nobody has said this might be a, pay- a person that we're sending stuff to. Anyway, um, it's just weird. So they, the the claim is even that Albie had made millions of dollars by, what did they say? It, it, something like he even invented some of the early technology that led to AI. I mean, this this is somebody who's no nobody <laughs> knows, you know, in within the AI community, research community, people are like, we have never heard of this person. Um so it all just sounds very, very odd. So um, is this his real name? It, it's it's basically just... Yeah. Yes. So so it's basically just played upon yeah. the gullibility of doctors. And I suppose the, um, the impression that AI is just around the corner and it's this miraculous to, new technology and it can do all this stuff. I recall when I read the article... I got sort of two paragraphs in and I thought, no, this isn't AI. This is a fucking human. <laughs> and, it's yeah, just crazy. It's, anyway, uh, so um, oh, there's just so many claims being made. It's just bonkers. Uh, we'll put up the links to the um, the spinoff articles that, that David has written because they're really, really interesting. And just as you read them, you're just like, what, what, what? Um, apparently now it is under investigation by various 
um, uh, authorities. <laughs> I really hope so. There is, there is a bit of a serious side to this too, in that one of the doctors who was um, involved in this and actually promoting it is actually trying to promote yeah, well, it and get investment in, yeah. from other doctors. Now, you kind of wonder, is, is he actually in on it or is he just a, a, a rube that's that's mm. been convinced by it and, and thinks that it's the best thing since sliced bread and so everybody else should be involved as well? Yeah, I mean, I would hope it's he's hard been to say. Duped. But he's still, you know, they were trying to, um, yeah, get oh, yeah. people to buy in shares, and they just they're saying it's, you know, worth millions this this charity, and it's just all like, say, kind of bullshit, like written all over it. It's bonkers. Yeah, I think they didn't they mention um, that maybe part of it was actually based upon the Mechanical Turk, yeah, um, thing that the Amazon runs. So there's basically people in third world countries, not necessarily third pay, world anywhere. You can well, anywhere. Okay. so it's somewhere on the internet who you pay a, you yes. have a service and it's Give basically them a just or something they transcribe yeah. something. Yeah, exactly. It's basically a distributed network of humans that are doing a whole lot of simple tasks. Mm. Um, to, to achieve something that would probably, for less money than it would cost you to employ a you know, local person to do. Mm. But, yeah, the fact, oh, it's just, I, I, I'm kind of surprised that, that that there were a bunch of doctors who didn't think that 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 you would need yeah. ethics permission maybe or something that the... Well, well, you would have just hoped that the doctors are smart enough to be more sceptical. There you go. Ah. It just shows none of us, right, <laughs> or any of us can be can be fooled. It's really, it's just wow, wow. Well, and I mean, it's, it's also it depends Watch what you've been told. Space. If someone said, oh, it's, we've got this amazing. AI that's um, doing transcribing patients, I mean, well, why not? I mean, there could be. I mean, it's, it's not it's not infeasible. You've got this on our phone. We've got the thing, the apps on our phone. So so if all you've been told is, oh, we've got this thing that um, you know, if people probably were told that you know, or led to believe it was something on 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 their laptop or whatever. It's only if once you dig into it, David's dug into it, David Farrier, and then the more you dig, the the more you find. That's 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 where it becomes a good story. No, but equally, the whole like no, exactly. emailing stuff if, and then waiting just, twenty minutes the, for a response. I mean, that's if you're just, just a GP, like, ah. if you're just a GP <laughs> yes. and you were told, yeah, "Oh, the, look, there's this app we have. You flag. just record your notes and you'll get back the thing." I mean, you can do that on your phone. I mean, I don't know why they aren't just using their phones, to be honest. But um, you know, yeah. that, that that in itself is not <laughs> an extraordinary claim, symptom. right? It's not an extraordinary claim that there is a computer device that can take your recorded conversation and turn it into medical notes. That, that is perfectly reasonable. It's a symptom a little bit of the whole black box issue, where people basically think computers are magic. And so it's not that hard to convince them. If you send an email to this address and 20 minutes later we'll send you back, you know, the result, and they don't really listen to anything mm. else. They don't stop to think about, is this a plausible method? Well, they're getting the don'ts back. That's what they wanted. So there's a couple of other um, funny things. So one of them was that they also um, uh, were um, said they had an AI that was going to be able to construct legal arguments and things. Mm -hmm. And so they sort of they were apparently um, approaching lots of law people about that. And that one was called Hustle. For fuck's sake! <laughs> <laughs> it's a yeah. terrible hustle. Um, and then they've also um, David's been looking at all their websites and stuff, and um, it's. 
most of it is just plagiarized from other people's websites and things. It's just, so the whole, like the idea that their foundation and their businesses are called terrible is like, yep, it really, <laughs> really is all there in the name. <laughs> it reminds me of, um, of a TV show yeah. called The Real Hustle, where a couple of magicians go around showing you how scams work. And anytime they have a, like a courier van or an ID card, it's always the TRH company, which is the name of the show, The, the Real right. Hustle. And um, right. they, they ask them, well, what's the, what's the DRH stand for? Well, they really hustle as in we deliver our packages quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Moving on to Delia's slash Craig's dubious device. Craig, you listened to the Magic Headphones. I did. So this is one of the rare circumstances where we actually follow up from a previous month's story. <laughs> Literally anything ever, yep. <laughs> so um, for, for uh, loyal listeners, you would recall that last month I was uh, telling uh, Susie and Nathan about uh, this fantastic headphone system that I was going to go and listen to. This is the Sennheiser HE1 headphone system um, that a, a neighbor of mine who owns a computer company had on display and it was kind of a once in a lifetime um, opportunity. Yeah, so I went and listened to this um, headphone system. Um, so I kind of went along with expectations that it would be absolutely amazing. I was underwhelmed, no, so 90,000 New Zealand dollars to purchase right. this. I would expect that to be amazing yeah, too. Yeah, so um, it was actually quite. I mean, it looked nice, and it had um, it had the 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 animated um, popping up, glowing uh, vacuum tubes, and yep. the and the the solid marble base. Um, and yeah, no, it was it was very impressive visually, um, and it had mm -hmm. a basically a solid metal remote. Um, <laughs> which is pretty pretty solid, probably weighed about a one and a half kilos of remote. Um, but anyway, so I, I put the headphones on. I listened to um, a song that I knew well, uh, which was um, Hotel California by the Eagles. And that Stephen is looking down his nose at that. It's all right. <laughs> right. I thought you might have gone for Pink Floyd, given the high, uh, high quality recordings of their, uh, they're famous for. Yeah. Um, but it sounded it sounded good. I didn't think it sounded amazing, and it didn't necessarily sound any better than um, headphones that I've listened to before. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I really did have an expectation that there would be something really magical about it, and I really did not feel that was the case. Um, your problem, Craig, is that you're just not gullible enough. <laughs> yes, or maybe I have... I just am not discerning in my listening. Uh, uh, that's possibility. Maybe yes. I've just got cloth ears. Yep. Um, you don't have the ability to, to audio file. But yeah, no, it was interesting. I, I think uh, one of the marketing things around it is that, well, um, here's a set of headphones that 90, that's $90,000. It's amazing, but obviously you're not going to buy those. But here's a set of headphones that's 1500 or $2,000. Um, that's a bargain, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why don't you buy those? Yeah. Um, so yes, the store the store that I went to certainly uh, specialised in selling headphones, and there were some that were up in that sort of price range. Um, yeah, I got the impression that they was sort of there was a touring thing. They were going from store to store with it or something. 
Yes, I think yeah. so. Yes, it, so it's a promotional. So they only thing. had it for about a week. It, it is a promotional thing. I mean, they're not really expecting anybody in New Zealand to be um, stupid enough buying to buy those. It. I don't yeah. think. No, what do they, what do no, they call but, it? Anchoring, um, where they give you the number and then say suddenly, "Oh, look how cheap this one is in comparison." Mm. So cycle, yeah, is that the term? I, don't I don't think know that's that. it. I don't know. I'll look it up later. Right. Maybe. Okay. Um, so, so, so my friend was telling me that um, this was kind of the entry level price for this. Um, and and it was selling pretty well in in countries like Saudi well, Arabia, yeah. and it was kind of like a simple thing, and and you could get them customized. You could get it in whatever color you wanted, and and <laughs> all these customizations to it, and so on. But yes, no, I did, definitely did not think that it was worth ninety thousand dollars, or indeed sounded anything like it was worth. 90, well, I'm disappointed. Um, I think a I think a a good a good set of headphones. Um, in the price range of a few hundred to a thousand dollars is probably um, going to sound equally good. Um, interestingly, the the source material they were running it um, using a service called Tidal, um, which is kind of a it's an online streaming service, which is an alternative to the likes of Spotify. And the the difference with Tidal is that. Um, the the bit rate that you get delivered is essentially lossless um, lossless CD audio quality, um, whereas what gets delivered to you by Spotify um, can be sort of a much lower rate, um, and it is supposedly lower quality. I think it would be very interesting to see whether people can actually hear the difference. I would suspect. Um, I am very skeptical. I am very skeptical of yeah. that. Um, having so, I've I've done some. So what I did was I before I went and auditioned these headphones, I actually um, put on a set of headphones myself, listened to Hotel California via Spotify, and I also listened to Hotel California on. An original CD that I have, and I could not tell the difference between yeah. them. Um, so, to me, I think that um, the, the the compression that's part of the uh, the standard for Spotify is actually pretty good, and you're not actually losing any um, uh, audio information. Um, it, it, well, cert- certainly, certainly, some audio information is being thrown away, but whether that is actually audible or not is another matter. So yeah, I think uh, that that would be a very interesting experiment to do to see whether people could actually pick the difference between these um, supposedly non, the supposedly lossless audio formats and the yeah. the lossy formats and reliably tell the difference and say yes, this one has much more detail or whatever and, and so. I on. sign up for this experiment when we finish the podcast. <laughs> yes. All right. right. Very good. So. Susie, you found us a device. Oh my God, have I found you a device? Well, I don't know. That was my question. Have you found us a device? Yes, I have. Um, I have found a series of devices called the Zytos. Um, so uh, these are, how, how can I describe them? They're they bioscanners? Are, yeah, bioscanners. So the, the idea is that you put, Right, exactly. So you put your hand on this device and then it apparently um, sends, sends your hand um a uh sorry i'm going to try and find how they described it um so it's a bit they they describe it as a bit like carrying out a survey instead of uh being asked questions the, your your body is basically being asked these questions um uh unconsciously by a signal being sent to your hand and then this machine um measures the response to that signal and then analyzes it 
and then essentially tells you uh, what kind of supplement you need to be taking <laughs> based on your response to this because thing. Of course so you do. there's a whole bunch. Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of the machines um, that have different numbers of um, uh, what they call biomarkers that you can, and the different kinds of scans that you can do. So, so sorry. So you can go from basically a, a the compass machine, which is obviously the 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 least um, the, that only has seventy six biomarkers, and that's one hundred and seventy seven euros. So maybe what's that, a three hundred bucks or something. But they're going all the way to the elite, which is 13,000 euros, so like 25,000 um, bucks. But there's a monthly subscription fee. And that and basically, you can choose to load the software <gasps> with the catalog of whatever supplements and various things that you sell. <laughs> you totally can. So you can basically – so only pick from your list of shit. Yeah, yeah. And but then it shows the customer, look, look, I've just done your scan and this is what it's recommending that you should be taking. Oh my Holy god. Shit. I know, I know, this isn't is that insane? For us. Well done. Isn't it? Yeah. I feel like I've excelled myself. This is just bonkers. So they're calling it biosurveys. So that work, they say they work like the lie detector test by you know measuring the responses your in your skin, um, and if you um, and they're perfectly safe, and you can use them on even up to babies, and you can use them with pacemakers. That's because you're just putting your hand on a little device; it's not doing anything. Anyway, oh, it's amazing. So you can you can actually oh. buy this here in Auckland because it's actually an Auckland number for this. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I, I went oh, to the, oh. I went to the contact page, and um, yeah, so that seemed to be based in yep. Ireland, but there are local numbers yeah. in Germany, Netherlands, Auckland. Oh my god! Well, what are we going to do? Australia? Are we going to get them in for an interview? No, I, I think we should try it out. I want to know what supplements yeah. I should be taking, and then but you can you can do it so that you can say right we're scanning for actually I should do the infectious diseases one because you can scan for infectious yeah. diseases or you can you can give yourself something <laughs> and then so you can pick it up you've got access to things right yeah but they're all really quite nasty things I I don't really want to be taking those things <laughs> it's all in the dedication service of science Susie I'm not sure I'm that dedicated. <laughs> You don't want to, you're not wanting to um to to put your life on the line on so that. One? Yes. No, I'm not. So possibly related to this, um, I have a couple of um complimentary tickets to go to Ooh. the Go Green Expo and Better Food Fair in Auckland next Ooh. weekend. Um, so I'm going oh, to go I along to, to that. do that. Yes, and uh, with my sceptical hat on, and just see what what sort of products are on offer. Take and- some photos and video and. Record yourself, take a yes. recorder with you. Yeah, well, I don't know whether I'll go that far, but um, definitely uh, might ask some sceptical questions and just see whether Come back and do a report next time. Oh, here we go. I've found a clinic, uh, the Biotrace Clinic. They have it in Auckland. They have um, they can do quantum reflex analysis, hair tissue mineral analysis, oligo scan. That doesn't sound like huh. it does what they think it does. Um, and then they have the Zyto Elite. No. There you go. So they, so they've spent the big money on so the Elite. You need to contact right. them, Susie. Uh, which oh, it costs it costs a hundred bucks for a session. Well, I was going to say it if you contact them as an expert in this sort of thing and um, tell them you're from a 
try and get a media media pass to get in and see if they'll do you a demo. <laughs> Tell them oh you talk God. about it on your on your podcast. Yeah. Oh my God! I have to say the hundred bucks is pretty well, cheap, so, Susie. I had a CT scan this week, and that was five hundred bucks. Yeah, because it's, it's real bloody medicine. <laughs> it works. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Actually, uh, let me let me be clear. Their clinic pricing has a consultation price, plus so maybe the Zyto assessment is on top of the consultation price. Mm. Well, so there's the price. Ask. There's a price for the elite machine, and it's thirteen thousand one hundred fifty euros. Yeah, right. That's quite a lot. That's if you want to buy the machine. Yeah. Susie's just going to go to a clinic, you, no, and I'll do it for you, right? Yeah, I'm not going to buy the machine. Okay. I'm just saying you- they have one, and they've got the the top of the range one, so they've spent the money. Did you, Susie? Did you look at the reframing perceptions thing? This is also very disturbing. It seems to be something that you talk into, and um, and it it analyzes your perception, and then you can somehow retrain. I think you can retrain yourself so that you have a perception shift. Oh, sounds very bizarre. <laughs> very bizarre. It's very. Um- Talking to something and it kind of punishes you until you do it right or something. Uh, it sounds quite creepy. Yeah, very clockwork orange. Yeah, really. Oh, it's gross. The, um, uh, the software looks very science. <laughs> yes. Did you see the little chart? A little graph on the well, first yes, page. Yes, there's charts and things. And, yeah. Wow. Anyway, I think we need to move on. We're getting a bit in time. So really quickly, hopefully, word of the day. Heptarchy. Uh Okay, so hip, hip to seven. seven. Yeah. Um, uh, Stephen should I'll, go first, because he's the I'll, guest. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Um, seven layers. Seven, like a hierarchy of seven. Okay. Seven yeah. things. Seven things stacked on top of each other. Maybe like the the ISO um, model. The know. open. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. ISO. Yes. Hmm. Well, I, I wouldn't have a better answer than no. that, but Stephen said it first. So, a seven-layered high, a seven-seven-level hierarchy. Yes, a depth of seven. Anyone else then? Um, something to do with the livers. Livers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, possibly. And no answer from Craig. Or are you going to try and glom onto Stephen's? Well, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm hooking myself onto Stephen's wagon. Okay. wagon. I'm sure there's some sort of pointing scheme where you get some of his as his down, down pyramid. Um, no, the answer is government by seven people. Oh, I was going to say something like oh, that. Oh, but you didn't, uh, did you? Okay. Uh, no, I didn't zeros know. for everyone on that one, I think. Although that was quite good. Uh, yeah. Are there any governments that are governed where, where countries are governed by seven people? I don't imagine so. It is, of course, from the Greek archaea rule and hepta, which everyone yeah. got was seven. Yeah. And it's on the pattern of tetrarchy, tetrarchy, which, of course, would be four people running a government. Yeah, I was thinking the oligarchy. I was yes. like, oh, maybe it's seven, seven rulers, seven kings or something. Yeah. But, I assume some sort yeah. of a, a council system where there are seven people who all have equal authority, uh, which sounds like a very sensible way to do it, actually, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> and seven's a good number. I like seven. I, I, and that, um, that it's an odd number and you exactly. uh, never have a, uh, a tie. Yes. And it's a prime number. I'm sure so they're allowed to wear ties. I mean... 
<laughs> I imagine why they wouldn't. Anyway, moving on to the quote. This is a good quote. I like this quote. Hmm. So this is um, from Jane Goodall. Uh, she says, in many ways, the performances of Donald Trump remind me of male chimpanzees and their dominance rituals. In order to impress rivals, males seeking to rise in the dominance hierarchy perform spectacular displays, stamping, slapping the ground, dragging branches, throwing rocks. The more vigorous and imaginative the display, the faster the individual is likely to rise in the hierarchy and the longer he is likely to maintain that position. Oh, God, that's worrying, isn't it? (laughs) Indeed. If only we had a septarchy. Yes. What did I say? Heptarchy. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Heptarchy. Very good. And that's the episode. Thanks for coming, everyone. And thanks, Stephen, for joining us and for the interview. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nathan. You've been a charming host. If people host. want to get hold of you and send you their, their crank ideas, how do they do that? Um, I can be found pretty easily through the internet. I'm in the maths department at the University of Auckland. I, I, you, they, they, they just join join the queue. There's, there's, they're coming anyway. Fantastic. And you've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. If you'd like to send us feedback or ask us any questions, check at our Facebook page or the contact form on our website, thecusp.org.nz. Um, supposedly fantastic headphone system. It was worth 90,000. It costs 90,000 New Zealand dollars. Apparently somebody's released the hounds. Do you want to do that bit again? Darling. Hang on. Uh, let me just find out what's going on. Who let the dogs out? Who? 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 Who let the dogs out? You know this bit's going on in the podcast, right? 